0: Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. We're going to be picking up where we... Actually, I'm going to go back over a little bit of what we covered last week. The Lord has established three primary institutions among mankind. The first established institution was that of the family. And when God created Eve to answer to Adam, He created her in such a way that she would be a perfect helper. Now that word is not a demeaning word at all because that same word is used of the Lord in relationship to mankind. He is our helper. It's actually a very powerful and a very good word to use. Here is Eve who is created to be Adam's helper, to be involved in procreation of the race, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It is the place in which instruction is primarily introduced. It is a place in which discipline occurs. It's a place in which genuine love that is not dependent upon circumstances or upon responses. It is a place of peace in the ideal it is a place of safety it's a place of acceptance and it is a great institution which today as you know is being denigrated Uh, it's being attacked by virtue of same sex marriage which is it's an abomination to the Lord and and I I know that people they they say oh if you say that you're homophobic I'm I'm not afraid of homosexuals they don't scare me at all. As a matter of fact, in an appropriate sense, I love homosexuals because Christ died for them as much as he died for sinful heterosexuals. And so it's not a matter of isolating people. It's a matter of dealing with sin, which is sin. And so the the family is suffering. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this week, but now they're saying that the new norm is having babies out of wedlock. Yes, that's the new norm. Um, People are living together outside of the benefit of marriage and, and there are all kinds of things that are attacking the home, the family, which was the first institution that the Lord established. The second institution that He established was the institution of government, human government. It was to restrain evil. It was to create a barrier in the experience of humankind's existence that would say your behavior can go this far but no further and if you go further than this then there will be consequences and the first element of that human government really involved capital punishment whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. And then that was further explained that there would be times in which a person may end the life of another individual, but it would not be a violation of God's directive. But when a murder takes place, then there is to be a reciprocation of punishment. Well, that then grew into a much broader spectrum in the sense that what it did was it allowed for governments to establish appropriate behavior. And without the restraint of government, if you were in a hurry, you'd drive 100 miles an hour down the road. And in addition to the problems we already have, we'd have a lot more. People would not be uh, concerned about the, the penalty for committing crimes. And so God established the human government to be a very powerful force in man's experience and one that was designed for the purpose of good. And obviously uh, governments have not always been good. The third institution that the Lord established was the church. It is the institution which he loves deeply. It's the institution that he identifies as the body of Christ. It is the institution that identify or is identified as the bride of Christ. He uses all of these loving expressions to communicate to us just how important the church is. To him. Now, the church has also experienced a great deal of denigration. There are people who believe that the church is a non essential part of the Christian experience. I would suggest to you that there is never an occasion in the New Testament where a person is separated from a local church and living in obedience. The local church is an absolutely essential part of God's program because it reflects the body of Christ which is made up of all believers from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. It is the institution for which the Savior died. It is that body that shows through its life the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ. It is the bride that he will receive to himself when he comes to take us to be with him through the rapture. And so, the local church is extremely important, and in spite of the fact that people don't follow god's directives for the family, in spite of the fact that people do not obey the law, there is also the reality that people do not love the church the way the Lord intends for them to, and so he brings thinking back into line with his goals, with his purposes, and we saw that here in First Corinthians the third chapter. I'm going to read the verses that we read last week together again so that we again have our reference point in mind. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at the first verse. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase." So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can one lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. In these verses, the Lord has expressed in an undeniable way his concern for the local church. This is being written to a local congregation of believers, just as we are a local congregation of believers here today. His concern is that the church would be mature. And last week, we understood this, that the church is people. We could be meeting out in the soccer field or the football field, and we would still be the church. If we were meeting clandestinely in a basement in a house in China, we would still be a local church. So the church is made up of people. And the people are essentially reflected on three different levels. There are, first of all, those who are unsaved. And when I say that they are part of the church, I mean only in the sense that they will attend a gathering of God's people. They will be there as part of the gathering, but they are not essentially a part of the church. These people do not have eternal life. Their spiritual life is actually reflected more accurately through being dead in their trespasses and sins. They do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit within them, and they do not understand the mind of God. Look back at chapter 2, verse 14, and you'll see again this description. The natural man, that is the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. His goals, his philosophies of life, his purpose is not directed by the desires of God, but rather those goals, purposes, and thoughts are directed by personal desire. They are a reflection of what this person is. And there can be an expression of good things from a human level. Unsaved people can love people. They can care for other people. But they have no relationship with the Creator other than they are part of His creation. If you've ever heard the expression, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, you got to be real careful with that. God is not the Father of everyone. Jesus made that very clear when He spoke to the Pharisees and He told them, You are of your father, the devil. That makes a very clear distinction. These unsaved people are not part of God's family, though they may be part of a church gathering, and and there may be some here who would fall into that category. There is another dimension, and that involves people who are spiritual. As you look at verse 15 of chapter 2, "...but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one." These people have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. These are people who possess, by the grace of God, eternal life, which is a quality of living right now. It is not merely the presence that we would experience with God for all eternity, but it is a whole new level of life that responds to God and His Word. It understands His Word. This this level of life is essentially the abandonment of self to the point where life is being lived for the glory of the Creator, for the exaltation of His name, for the fulfillment of His purpose. And the thoughts that we have are not directed by selfish desires and selfish goals, but they are thoughts that are directed by the very purpose that God has for His people in general and for each one of us individually. And so the Lord speaks through His Word clearly to those who are spiritual. Now they have the mind of Christ. They can think on the level that the Lord thinks on. They can be kind to one another, but they also have an appropriate and proper relationship with the Lord Himself. There is a third dimension of individual that's identified, and these are identified here in this third chapter. And you'll notice as he begins, he says, I, brethren, cannot speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. This identifies for us the third level of people that make up the church. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They have trusted Christ as their Savior, and so at the moment they were uh, brought into this relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit of God took up residence within them. They were given the gift, the benefit of eternal life, that life which right now is a whole new quality, but the quality of that life is disrupted by selfish, carnal, fleshly desires. In fact, carnal believers are sometimes hard to distinguish in their behavior and in their goals from unsaved people. They they embrace a lot of the same philosophies of life. They they desire the things that are of the temporal rather than the things that are of the eternal. And one of the evidences of carnality is the inability to get beyond the most fundamental truths that are taught in Scripture. Paul says, I can't write to you at Corinth as unto spiritual people, but I've got to write to you as if you were babes. You you, you may have known the Lord for years, but you've never gotten beyond the capability to understand regeneration, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You've never gotten beyond the realm of baptism, which in the physical realm identifies a person with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And in the spiritual realm, it's the baptism of the Spirit of God that places us into the person of Christ. And then we can say, well, I am in Christ, and whenever the Father sees me, He sees the the righteousness of His Son, and so I stand before God in righteousness, and I am so happy. And they get no further. They don't understand Doctrine, they don't understand the truths of the Scriptures that take a person beyond the elemental things. The writer of Hebrews, as we looked last week, tells us, it's time to get past that. It's time to stop being factional. It's time to stop making heroes out of people and focusing on the person of Christ. And so he identifies these three. And now he's writing to a church that seems to be predominantly made up of those who are carnal. And there are things that they just don't understand. And so he's going to tell them more. I want you to know that the Lord is very concerned about the maturity of his church. But then there's a whole other dimension that he brings up here. And he tells us this, that he is concerned about the growth of the church. Notice... How in the verses that follow, he interjects the idea of the growth of the church being affected by the quality of the work that's put into it. And so there is a labor that Paul identifies as being part of causing the church to grow. Now growth can occur in several different ways. It can grow numerically where more and more people are introduced to Christ and are responsive to the gospel and they come to know the Savior and they become part of a local gathering of believers. But there's also the dimension of personal spiritual growth that goes on. It takes an individual... And causes that individual to mature and develop in such a way that they don't have to be spoon-fed, but they can now go themselves to the meat of God's Word and they can understand what God has to say and they're able to systematize in their thinking and in their understanding the truths that God has revealed. And I want to tell you, it takes a whole lifetime and you still feel like you're just scratching the surface. Because there's so much to understand. And so the Lord says, I am concerned about your personal growth. I got to thinking just this morning, you know, there there are little things that come into your head. In my head, there's a lot of little things that come. And I was thinking, what makes a successful family? If somebody said to you, what makes a family successful? Successful. That's one of the institutions that the Lord has established. What would make it successful? Well, I think the answers would include, but not be limited to this, it would be a home in which the husband and the wife love each other. They encourage each other in their faith and in their walk together. They care for one another. They are concerned about the well-being of the other. And if the Lord introduces children into that home, they will see to it that those children are instructed in the truths that are of eternal value. Not only that their children would come to know Christ as Savior, but they would also grow to understand what it is to be a follower of Christ and to embrace the truths and the realities of who Jesus Christ really is. And it would be a place where discipline would occur. It would be a place where a propagation of the qualities that make people responsible, productive, interactive, they would they would all take place. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Does a family have to be big to be successful? Can it be successful with just a husband and a wife? Yeah. Can it be successful? If there is one child, can it be successful if there are four children? Can it be successful if it's like the Sevilles who are going to have twelve children? Is that no is that the number, Mark? Six. Oh, okay. <laughs> Six. How far are we now? Six. <laughs> Yeah, it can be successful regardless of the numbers. And then I got to thinking, you know what? Do you know what the average size church is in this country? Depending on who you read, 70 to 95. You say, wait a minute, I know churches that are thousands and thousands of people. No, but there are thousands and thousands of tiny little churches. All over the place that are meeting together. Can that little church be successful? Yes. Because if that church is doing what the Lord intended for it to do, the numeric value can be overshadowed by the growth value, where individuals are growing, and then if God chooses, He can cause numerics to increase. And there are churches like that literally all over the country. The first church that that I pastored, a little country church in, in Wisconsin, um, I think we had about 90 people or so. There were 30 members when we got there. And uh, it was a great church. We loved it. The Lord did bless in a variety of different ways, including numerically. But that the big issue to me was we saw people growing and loving the Savior and living for Him. So there are different dimensions in which the Lord is concerned about growth. So how then is this growth going to be affected? It's going to be affected by the quality of the work that is placed into it. Well, what kind of work is placed in? Well, let's go right back to the Scriptures and find out. There are people who are going to build the church, and again, there are three different types of individuals that are introduced in this process of building. The first is identified for us down here in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, or we could put it this way, an expert builder, Paul is identifying himself; he is identifying the fact that he has been called by God to lay a foundation, according to the grace of God given of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Well, what, what does he tell us here? He says, first of all, there is a foundation that is laid, and that foundation is laid with a specific cornerstone. And that cornerstone determines the direction, it determines the, the propriety, and, and it determines the base upon which the rest of this building will be built. And so, Peter, when he was standing before the religious leaders of the day after Christ's ascension, and they were very upset that he was proclaiming the person of Christ, he's taken before the council and he's on trial. And then he says this as that trial is unfolding. He's speaking about Christ and he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Later, in his epistle, he writes this, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So now we begin to recognize that the cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. And everything else is built upon him. Even the rest of the foundation which is the apostles and the prophets. Listen to what the apostle Paul declared in Ephesians chapter 2. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets... Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So now we have a very clear picture of what this expert builder, this master builder did. He took the cornerstone that stone of stumbling to those who don't believe, but the rock upon which our lives and our eternity dwells, that person, Jesus Christ, becoming the chief cornerstone, and now the writings and the revelation of the apostles and the prophets, declaring all that we find in Christ. And Paul says, there is no other cornerstone, there is no other foundation, it all centers on the person of Jesus Christ. No mere man. No mere philosophy, but the person of Christ. He understood something. He understood that not everybody would buy into this, and there would be those who would try to lay a different foundation. That instead of being built upon that cornerstone and the foundation of Christ and the apostles and the prophets, there would be those who would draw people after themselves Proclaiming something that was not the true gospel. Paul proclaimed a gospel of grace. A gospel that identified Jesus Christ as God come in the flesh who became our substitutionary sacrifice at the cross of Calvary having lived a perfectly sinless life but now having our sin Heaped upon him, dying on that cross, shedding his blood by which sinful man's rebellion and violence against God could be cleansed. Dying, being buried, and rising again from the dead, so that everyone. Would put his or her faith and trust in that sacrifice of Christ and trust him and him alone. God, by his grace, would extend freely the gift of eternal life, not dependent upon which we do that, which we do, not dependent on a religion that we embrace, not dependent upon any action. In which we might be involved, but simply trusting the person of Christ and his sacrifice and having our sins forgiven, cleansed completely, and being granted the gift of eternal life freely. That's the gospel. But then here's what he says there are people who are going to come around and they're going to tell you things that are not the gospel. And he puts it so strongly that he makes a declaration that takes us beyond mere humanity. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we... He understands his own weakness. That even he, as the apostle to the Gentiles, could fail. Even we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Folks, this is happening all around us a false gospel is being proclaimed. A gospel that teaches people if their good outweighs their bad, God will accept them. A gospel that says if you do enough good works, God is a loving God, and He is. But He is a God who loves us so much that He provided a sacrifice for our sins so that we would not try to work our way into heaven because if we did, then we would have something about which to boast. And we'd get to heaven and say, oh, look how good I was. And he says, no, there's none good. No, not one. There's none who seek after God. There's none that does righteousness. Only my son. And you come by him. You could go to a host of churches within a five-mile radius of us and thank the Lord there are churches that are preaching the gospel within that range. But there are many that are not. And they are preaching a false gospel. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says, let them be accursed. it's, It's a little bit harder than that. Let them be damned. That's how important this message is. And he laid that foundation. And then he says, now you be careful how you build on that foundation. Let's read it. Go back to verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, now he's introducing another person. A wise builder. A builder who takes the foundation of Christ and begins to build upon that foundation the truths not only in their personal life, but in what they communicate, those truths that accurately and honestly reflect what God has revealed to us through His Word. And the person who is the wise builder takes the teachings, the doctrines, and says, this is what God says. And this is upon these doctrines are the basis upon which we stand and we find our fellowship and we find our direction. Is it possible to misunderstand God's doctrine? Yes. And there are good people who see things differently. Don't anybody misunderstand what I'm saying here? They are brothers and sisters in Christ. But the truth is, you, you, are responsible to determine what God's word has to say in the areas of anthropology what is man like in the areas of theology who and what is God like in the areas of hamartiology what has sin done In the areas of soteriology. What does God say is the means by which our salvation comes? In the realm of ecclesiology. How does the Lord want the church operating? In the realms of eschatology. What does God say the future holds? What events are we looking forward to? And you and I are responsible to know what God says and to determine where we stand, not with an arrogance, but with a confidence that we have thoroughly studied the Word and we are convinced that this is where God wants us to stand and upon this we build our lives. Say, how does that, what does that matter? Well, let me tell you this. My eschatology teaches me that I am looking forward to the rapture. I'm looking forward to the, the trumpet sound and the voice of the archangel and meeting the Lord in the air. I am not comforted by the revelation of the Antichrist, which some believe we will be here when that occurs. I am very confident in the thousand-year reign of Christ literally upon this earth as the king, setting his feet upon the Mount of Olives and causing it to divide and establishing a kingdom that is a theocracy, which will be an absolutely perfect kingdom, but against which people will arise because their hearts are still evil and they will try to fight Him. And I believe that at the very end, the Savior Himself will come and defeat those armies that oppose Him, and then there will be a great white throne judgment in which people's works will be judged to show that they're sinners, but if their names do not appear in the Lamb's book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his demons, his angels. Here I stand what I believe. And I know why I believe it. And I'm convinced. Does it mean that I can't change my view on things? No, I've changed my views on things. Years ago, I used to believe in what would be considered, I guess you might call it an Arminian theology. I don't believe that anymore. I cannot find a scriptural justification for that. Today, I believe in what would be called I could use different terms for this, but um, probably the best would be a reformed theology which focuses on, on the divine sovereignty of our God and His worthiness to receive all praise. So are we willing to change? I hope so. If we find that we're wrong, I was wrong.